Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Pumped to join in us today. Today I have Emerson Green. We're going to be talking about everything wrong with physicalism. Um, some fun stuff about consciousness and stuff. But Emerson, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, it should be super fun. Um, so before we get into this, do you want to like introduce yourself and talk about like who you are? And I'm sure like if people are listening to this channel, you may have some idea. Like Emerson and I have like we've debated, we've responded to Emerson. He's been on a debate, so like we're still friends, you know, a little bit maybe. Um, do you want to just like talk a little bit about who you are in case people don't know um, about you? So um, I just have a couple podcasts. I started one um, a few years ago called Counter Apologetics, where I just talk about atheist stuff and. It's like more about like philosophy of religion these days. And I started another podcast called Walden Pod, where I just talk about like, you know, non-philosophy of religion stuff, the other interests I have. And a lot of it's about consciousness. Um, I've got a YouTube channel that I've just kind of apathetically uploaded things to occasionally with like a still image for years. But I'm getting like more into it now of, um you know, actually making like YouTube videos and stuff. Um but yeah, and um, I'm an atheist and a non-physicalist. Good stuff. Yeah, it should be super fun. So what we're going to do, and I, I do want to say, like, I wanted to bring up this dis disclaimer at the beginning. Like, this is one of these things, like, I want to have Emerson because, like, he's an atheist. Like, he doesn't believe in God. And, like, I'm a theist, obviously. Like, I believe in God. But, like, there's certain things, like, say, like, the nature of, like, the mind, like, that we can agree that, like, physicalism isn't the way forward. And I think a lot of times, like, um, some people may be like drawn towards like physicalist views because it feels like that's what you need to be to be an atheist or something like that, mm -hmm. um, especially yeah. the online. But like in reality, there's a long tradition of um, atheist non-physicalism. It's like it has to do, I guess, mostly with, with connotations, you know, kind of like mm -hmm. social connotations. But there's not really any substantive connection between like reductive mm -hmm. materialism and atheism. So if you look at the, you know, there's a lot of talk about like the rise of non-physicalism these days or whatever, like, you know, materialism is in decline or something. And um, atheists are behind that. <laughs> like atheists, non-physicalists are behind the rise of non-physicalism. So the biggest names are, you know, people like David Chalmers, who's an atheist, or Thomas Nagel, or Noam Chomsky, or Galen Strawson, or Philip Goff. And, you know, I also think someone who deserves an honorable mention, at least, is, um, is Sam Harris, like, you know, kind of a mm -hmm. new atheist guy, you know, one of the four horsemen and like still is, you know, recognizably not a physicalist. Um, I'm not sure if his fans know that because he'll, he'll say things like, well, consciousness is a matter of information processing, but like, that's not an expression of physicalism. And if you look at his, um, who he kind of venerates and who he points you to. So, you know, Sam Harris, when I was listening to him in his podcast, when I was like a teenager or whatever, just being introduced to this stuff for the first time, the people who he directs you towards are like Thomas Nagel and David Chalmers. Like, those are the people who he's interested in, who he thinks have good things to say. And his wife, Annika Harris, just wrote a book about consciousness um, where she, you know, defends panpsychism. But anyway, all that to say that um, atheist non-physicalists, you know, it's a it's a thing. It's been a thing for a long time. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. going back to like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer all the way into the present to like David Chalmers and Thomas Nagel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's just sometimes we get stuck in like this false and like view of things where it's like it's the atheist materialist versus the theists. And it's just like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's just completely false. Um, yeah. But, yeah. So let's start off with a very easy question, Emerson. Um, so, yeah. What is consciousness? Oh, um, well, it's it's interesting because there are two ways you can take that question. One way, it's, you know, very obviously not an easy question. But in the way that I take it, it's, you know, the easiest question that could be asked because it's the only thing that you really know with certainty. It's the thing you have the most familiarity with. Um, so I guess the, the consciousness as I'm interested in it, it has to do with what's called phenomenal consciousness. 
So what I mean by that, if you've ever heard the phrase like, you know, that it's like something to be, um, you know, it's like something to be right now for you. Like it's like something to be for you. Um, there's experience. That's the word I tend to use. Um, but, you know, a way of getting at this is you can think about um, like a robot who carries out all the same functions that you carry out, you know, like all these complex functions that uh, your brain and body perform, but it's just not like anything from that, from the robot's perspective. Um, you know, so it, it's all the same, it's, or, you know, it's complex physical activity, they're carrying out the same functions, but it's not like anything for that robot to carry out those functions. On the other hand, you can imagine a ghost where it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't have a body, but it still has experiences. So I'm not claiming that either of these is like metaphysically possible, by the way, I'm just saying, I'm just trying to get you to realize what I mean by consciousness. It's what the ghost has, but the robot doesn't have. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. I like the idea of just thinking about consciousness is just like the surest thing we know. Because at least for me, like when I think about like trying to describe it, it's like, it's hard to go like beyond that, like idea of just like having our own experiences and like thinking about the world. Um, so yeah, that's super helpful. So then let's talk about the view. Um, we're gonna be critiquing physicalism in this video. What is physicalism? Well, you know, it's hard to define to the point where it's hard to define to the point where some people think it's like a vacuous term. But mm -hmm. I don't think that it's meaningless. Like, I think it's fine to just say that physicalism is the view that everything is physical, you know, that like reality is exhausted by the physical, physical things can only be causally influenced by other physical things. And it's like, okay, but what do you mean physical thing? You know, well, by physical thing, they just mean that like the basic elements of physics is, is that exhausts reality, you know, so you've got, uh, you know, only physical things, that's physicalism. And by physical things, I just mean like the basic elements of fundamental physical science, and that these physical things only have the properties that physics ascribes to them. So again, they're exhaustively described by physics. So, you know, it can get tricky though, because the way that I, I mean, sometimes physicalists will say like, well, you know, I'm a physicalist. I believe there's only atoms up here in my skull, but you know, so do panpsychists, or they might be like, well, you know, I think that there's only electrochemical brain activity going on. It's like, again, so do panpsychists. Um, you know, they'll say like, I don't have this immaterial soul that's interacting with the matter in my brain. It's like, yeah, neither panpsychists don't think that either. So the difference is, you know, or at least one of the differences, I guess, is that panpsychism doesn't suffer from the hard problem of consciousness. So, um, physicalism, I should mention is, uh, notice that I, that what I just described is not like a scientific fact. It's not like a scientific theory. So physicalism is a metaphysical view of consciousness. It's a metaphysics of consciousness. Physicalism is not a scientific theory. It's not a scientific fact. It's an unfalsifiable metaphysical view, just like panpsychism and naturalistic dualism. And um, these things are empirically equivalent. You're not going to run an experiment that proves that, um, you know, physicalism is true. Um, it's a metaphysical view. So yeah, I, I wish more physicalists would realize that, that, you know, that what they're describing is not like a scientific theory. It's a metaphysical theory. And it's just as unfalsifiable as panpsychism. It makes actually the same predictions as panpsychism. That's actually, there's a lot of great stuff that I'm really excited to talk about in a minute here. Um, so what we're going to do now, though, is I have a very short, like, 10-second clip from Pelogia that we're going to play. Because one of the things I wanted to do in this video is critique kind of, like, the common view of like physicalism, especially like in the online spheres, or 
it's something like what's well, just obvious the brain creates consciousness so we're gonna play this very short clip this is just in paul's video like why i'm not a christian so it's not exhaustive of like paul's views but i just want to i use it because it gives you like a little flavor of the typical view um especially that you see online so we're gonna play this clip it's only 12 seconds and yeah what we experience as our choices are in fact neuroprocesses governed by biochemistry and external stimuli Consciousness is an emergent property of brain cells, much as wetness emerges when enough water molecules gather. The extent to which... Okay, so that was the entire clip because that's all we're talking about is consciousness today. So what do you think of this kind of view of things, Emerson, where it's like consciousness is just like this emergent thing. It's similar to like the sensation of like wetness um, with regards to water using that kind of analogy. Well, I think that, I mean, this is just a nitpicky thing, but you know, you shouldn't say like the sensation of wetness or something. Cause like, that's the thing that we're trying to figure out. But like, I think a better way of expressing it would be like, you know, liquidity or fluidity or something, you know, something that's like uncontroversially physical, you know, cause sometimes there's a little bit of like question begging with the uh, analogies that physicalists will give. Um, but anyway, Paul just gave a really succinct description of how a lot of physicalists think and he perfectly described what i believed for mm -hmm. many years um yeah and like you said it's kind of like a you know very general like ten thousand foot view um but i think yeah that's a very succinct uh, description of what physicalists think and he does something that um basically i think all physicalists do this at some point where they appeal to some kind of unrelated example of successful reduction where they uh you know they're like you know water how it's like h2o well consciousness is just like that and it's like mm -hmm. okay how is it just like that you know because like they or you know tables and chairs like i can give a reductive account of a table it's like yes and they're like consciousness is just like that it's like okay so they just give these like unrelated examples of reduction that you know actually makes sense and they say that's what consciousness is like but that's not the same thing as actually giving a substantive you know account of reductive uh, physicalism so how does experience reduce to non-experiential parts like, you know, electrochemical activity? So, you know, when you're reducing H2O to non-H2O, um, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? Like you're just like, well, look, there's one hydrogen molecule, there's another hydrogen molecule, and there's an oxygen molecule. And you put those three atoms together and you get this H2O molecule. Like it's, you know, there's nothing left over. Like there's nothing left to explain. It's a totally intelligible reduction of one thing to another thing. So you've got non-H2O coming together in a way that creates H2O. That one hydrogen molecule, that's not H2O. That oxygen molecule, the other hydrogen molecule, like, no, like none of that is H2O. You put it together, you got this thing. Okay, so that's a reductive account of H2O. Now, when you're talking about reducing experience to non-experiential parts, it's just totally unintelligible. You know, like you start talking about, you know, so imagine that I kept pressing you, right? Where you were just like, I, you gave me that reductive account of H2O. It's like perfectly coherent, intelligible, reductive account of H2O. And I was just like, but where's the H2O-ness? Like where, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, you would think I would, you would rightly think that I was being irrational. It's like, no, there's nothing left over. There's nothing left to explain. I already, ex I already explained this. So Reductive physicalists want to say that we're sort of doing the same thing. So it's like, wait, why does it taste like something to eat a pineapple? And they're just like, I already told you that there's a mass of wet tissue that's electrified. And it's like, that does not seem like the same thing as just putting H2O together. You know, like, or like, you know, 
if I tell you like, well, how do you get this table? It's like, well, it's four legs in the tabletop, you know, that leg's not a table, that leg's not a table, it's tabletop, you know, but you put it together and you've got a reductive account, a perfectly intelligible reduction. Okay. But it, that does not seem like that's what's going on with consciousness when you're trying to explain uh, how experience can be reduced to non-experiential parts. It's never, it's never like, oh, you you gave me the brain account, like the, the account of the brain activity. And obviously that just entails the fact that it's like something to be that brain activity. Um, you know, you could give a complete description of the brain and as much fine grained resolution as you want. And it's never going to be the case that uh, you will have included the experiential aspect of your consciousness. Like you're never going to include that it's like something to be when you're just describing electrochemical brain activity. You can describe every physical fact about what's going on in your brain right now. And you will always just have to add, and by the way, it's like something to carry. Mm -hmm. Like it's never just gonna be entailed. You know what I mean? So it's like when you describe the table, it's just entailed that you have a table when you've got the four legs in the tabletop, like it's, it's mm -hmm. unavoidable. There's nothing left to explain. But when you, when you give a physical account of what's going on in the brain and you can, you can get as in much fine grained detail as you want. You know, you can go down to the level of quarks if you want. There's nothing about that that entails experience. So it's just totally disanalogous. And that's why they have to appeal to these other examples because when you just try to give a reductive account of consciousness, it doesn't make any sense. So you have mm -hmm. to appeal to these other cases and say, yeah, it, you know, that's what it's like. Um, I I can keep going um, unless you no, want I'll, to interject here. <laughs> it's conscious. It's so much fun. Well, I'm sure we'll get to a lot of your things. It's like something that is interesting in like thinking about like me in terms of like thinking about like how I think about consciousness is it's funny. Like I grew up in like a Christian environment, but like I was always a physicalist. Like I never thought about like the mind that much because I like I really wasn't immersed in like this like mind or philosophy or anything like this stuff i just kind of was like like i remember a couple of times like being outside like i have a mind it's like oh yeah my brain creates this mind like it's just obvious and this is before i seriously thought about it and then like a couple of years ago i started to actually think about this and i was like wait so you're telling me that like my my experience is just like a product of like these like atoms bouncing around and um like neurons firing stuff and i was like well, no, that's just obviously false. Like there's obviously like some sort of relevant difference. So yeah, I just want to add that because at least for me, like that's how I thought of things. Like I was always an intuitively like a physicalist until I thought about it. And I was like, this actually doesn't make a lot of sense when you just say that like this like impersonal stuff creates this like personal sensation of consciousness. Like it just, mm -hmm. yeah. That's it just, it seems like different, um, like a different case entirely. Cause you can get, you know, A from not A all the time. Like you can get something, like you can get a table from component parts that are not tables, right? But like, it just seems like with experience, there's a huge disanalogy here. So like, um, I was kind of keying in on, and by the way, I should say you can be a Christian and a physicalist, by the way, there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that. <laughs> like yeah, Peter like Van Inwagen. In, in wagons, if, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, we said the same words, it's amazing. <laughs> um, so I was already keying in on the difference a little bit where it's like, we've got this intelligible story about reduction when it comes to H2O or table, you know, other stuff that we want to give reductive accounts for. Um, whereas we don't seem to have any intelligible reductive account of what it's like to be of experience, you know, phenomenal mm -hmm. consciousness. So um, yeah. So, so um, there's also this disanalogy where we're crossing the boundary from objective to subjective, right? So like when you talk about, um, 
you know, hydrogen and oxygen coming together to make H2O, or you're talking about different parts of a table or a chair coming together to, you know, make this new object, that stuff can be exhaustively described physically. Like you can just give a uh, physical account of the, um, of the atoms and a physical account of the molecule, and there's nothing left over. Like we haven't crossed the divide from physical to non-physical or from like objective to subjective. So you can give a complete account of H2O like objectively. And the thing is when we're talking about consciousness, this is just one reason why it's disanalogous. It's why I'm bringing it up is that we're crossing the objective subjective divide. At some point we're going from a purely objective description. That's at, you just add up enough objective descriptions and somehow you get a subjective description. I'm not exactly sure how that's supposed to work, but that's just one reason where it's just totally, why I think it's just totally disanalogous. It's like, Going from objective to subjective feels sort of like going from abstract to concrete. Like if I just put enough abstract objects together, I can get a concrete object. And it's like, no, you know, and if, yeah. if people were really trying to press you on why it, it sort of feels like it comes down to a brute intuition, um, which usually is fine. But because people are so uh, like almost religiously committed to physicalism, it's not fine here. But fortunately, there are other arguments for, um, you know, thinking that consciousness didn't emerge the same way that like tables and chairs and H2O emerged. Yeah. Um, let's get into those like other arguments stuff in a second, but do you, do you think one of the things that comes up in this conversation, especially like the idea that like, well, physicalism just has the, the market on science. Like obviously like, like all the scientists are physicalists and like, you know, like we just have to find a scientific explanation, which is interesting because I was talking with someone t- this summer who is a PhD student in neuroscience. And I asked him this question. I was like, so like, is it true that like all the, phys- all the scientists are physicalists? And he's like, he's like, no, he's like, we never, like, he's like in my department, like we never talk about this stuff. Like it's like conscious, like in the neuroscience department, consciousness is like this vague thing that like we just kind of avoid and stop, don't talk about. We just do our experiments and we just keep going. Like, which is interesting. I wanted to bring that up. Like, what do you think about this idea that like, con- like physicalism has like, they own the market on explaining the existence of consciousness? just completely false. I I mean, like, it might be a sociological fact that many neuroscientists are physicalists, um, but neuroscientists are trained in neuroscience and not philosophy of mind. And again, materialism is a metaphysical theory of consciousness. It's not a scientific theory. Um, Some people, so materialists will sometimes get hung up on this point where they think that, yeah, they think that science is on their side because there are these correlations between experience and, um, you know, brain events. And it's like, that's undeniable. In fact, we've known about it for thousands of years that, you know, bodies and minds are intimately connected. And if you change the body, you'll change the mind. It's not news. It's not something we just discovered, something we've always known. Um, So the the intricacy of these correlations is something that's more recent, you know, and like the advancement of neuroscience, which by the way, I'm not trying to knock neuroscience. I'm just acknowledging that like, science is not meant to answer certain types of questions like metaphysical questions or questions about value, things like that. Um, But, you know, people are kind of in the thrall of, of science as like the arbiter of ultimate truth. So they think, well, if you want to understand consciousness, you've got to study neuroscience, you know, because that's the science of consciousness. Right. So um, the thing is that's, you know, misguided for like deep philosophical reasons that have to do with philosophy of science, not necessarily even philosophy of mind. But um, anyway, so neuroscience is, is neutral in this metaphysical dispute, okay? Like all of these different metaphysical theories of consciousness, they're pretty much like empirically equivalent. 
if you wanted to try to make some kind of empirical case for one or the other, it would be extremely thin gruel. Like it would not really be anything that you'd feel rational, like picking one over the other. Like if you're going to be a materialist or a dualist or a panpsychist, it's going to be um, for uh, philosophical reasons. You're going to have to reason your way into materialism or reason your way into dualism. It's not something you can observe to be true. Um, um, so yeah, and sociologically, I'll just say that there are tons of neuroscientists who aren't physicalists. And I'm not even sure it matters because they're, again, this is a metaphysical question. It's not something that they're really concerned with or that they really care about. And I'm not trying to talk about, I'm not trying to knock neuroscience. Like I said, like if you devoted your whole life to studying neuroscience, I think that would be a life well lived. Okay. Like, um, Shannon, I hope we're still cool. Neuroscience is cool. Okay. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm all, I'm all about it. Okay. But it's not a metaphysical theory of consciousness, just like coming up with more and more and more and more intricate correlations between brain and, and mind is not a, th a theory of consciousness. It's going to be part of the final theory of consciousness, if there will be such a thing, but that it's, it's not a scientific theory just to point out that there are correlations. Okay. I think that people get like tripped up because they think, oh, if it's just the brain, then it's, it's an entailment that there will be this tight correlation between brain and mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely true. But the thing is, it's an entailment of all forms of monism. And again, it's not a scientific theory. You still have to interpret these correlations in a way where you say, okay, these two very different seeming things, you know, the taste of pineapple and this electrochemical brain activity, these things seem very different, but I'm actually going to say they're identical. And it's like, you can do that. Okay. But I'm just saying it takes some philosophical work. It's not as simple as pointing out that there are mm -hmm. correlations because correlate that there are correlations between brain and experience is predicted by literally every metaphysical view of consciousness. And it's in fact, an entailment of every form of monism, including, mm -hmm. and there are non-physicalist forms of monism, right? Like panpsychism or idealism or neutral monism. So the fact that there, are, even if there was a perfect one-to-one -one correlation with every experience you ever had and activity in the brain, that would not prove that physicalism is true because you have to go further and like interpret that data. And there are, yeah, so I, I'm repeating myself at this point, but look, neuroscience is great. It is not the same thing as a metaphysics of consciousness. And that's what materialism is. Do you want to add anything to this point of like responding to the idea that like consciousness is just this emergent property of the brain before we get into like talking about like panpsychism and like, does it actually like does oh, yeah. it the predictions that panpsychism doesn't? We, we never even have to get to panpsychism because, yeah, I've got all <laughs> kinds of things to say about the... Because like I said, this is what I used to think. I used to think that consciousness was an emergent property of the brain in this... Well, not an emergent property, but like emergent from brain activity. Um, so actually, just kind of that slip up there, just kind of... Um, it's kind of a side point, but I think that a lot of materialists are actually property dualists. Like if you actually get mm -hmm. them to flesh out their view a little bit more, it's just they're not really familiar with... Um, the philosophy of mind. Um, like, uh, I don't know. It's just like, if you actually talk to them and get them to flesh out their view a little bit, they're property dualists, you know, so some of them are epiphenomenal property dualists. So it's like, so what's a property dualist in case someone doesn't know. Um, so it's like a weaker form of dualism. Most people are familiar with substance dualism. This is like a less radical form of that where, um, the mental properties are ultimately seated in the material brain properties. Like you've got to have the brain there to get the consciousness and the consciousness can exist separate from the brain, but these things are still ultimately distinct. 
like they're, they're these two distinct things, but it's like they're, they're intimately connected. So consciousness is an emergent property of the brain on property dualism. It's just that word emergent can have two different meanings, like weak emergence or strong emergence. So the weak emergent sense is the one that uh, reductive materialists are talking about. That's the one that Paul was talking about. That's the one I was talking about with uh, tables and H2O. That's weak emergence. Um, it's the kind of emergence that's like fully intelligible. It's, um, you know, it's reductive. It's like, there's nothing, there's nothing that's being added to like the inventory of reality, right? So it's like, you just take stuff that's already there and you just rearrange it. And then you've got another, you can just talk about stuff in another way that's convenient, but like you haven't added anything. It's just the same stuff that's always been there. So strong emergence, on the other hand, you've got this non-redundant addition to the inventory of reality. Like you've got this um, stuff that's over and above the material states. So it's not reducible to the material states. It's not deducible from the material states. It's like, it's this thing that's over and above. So yeah, so property dualists are, um, I mean, yeah, they, they, they kind of buy into this like strong emergence stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's helpful. Um, sorry, I kind of made it taking you off your train of thought, but no, please. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that whole, I mean, the whole idea of like weak emergence, like it's uh, something that Sean Carroll brought to my attention initially with his book, the big picture. Um, it's a really nice, neat little view of reality, but you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's questionable whether or not you can actually, account for everything in this kind of like extreme reductionist way. I mean, consciousness is one problem, but, um, okay. So why is the emergence of consciousness, not a case of weak emergence? Cause that's like what it comes down to. Like mm -hmm. if consciousness is real and it's, um, irreducible, meaning you can't give a reductive account of it, then reductive materialism is false. Okay. So I think that consciousness is real and irreducible. <laughs> so, um, you know, so if you want to say like, well, what's the problem with physicalism? Well, I think that physicalism entails that consciousness wouldn't exist mm -hmm. and consciousness does exist. So physicalism is false. Some people, if you can believe it, stick with physicalism, even after they find out that physicalism entails that consciousness doesn't exist. Yeah. They remain physicalists after they find mm -hmm. this out. This issue, I've got to say, this issue is like no other, like physicalism is a very special it holds a very special place in people's hearts <laughs> and it's really hard to talk them out of it. <laughs> I don't even I don't know understand the... how like literally like you can be so committed to like, maybe like a certain like materialistic view where you end up denying like the most fundamental thing we know to exist. Like it just, yeah, it just seems bizarre. That's the thing, you know, you know, I, I am kind of attracted to panpsychism, but like at the end of the day, it's not super important. What's more important is just some kind of form of non-physicalism. And the thing that's really important is that I'm a realist about phenomenal consciousness. Like that's my starting point. Okay. So it's like, if physicalism could give a satisfying account of phenomenal consciousness, then I'd be fine with it, but it can't. So I moved on. It doesn't feel any different to me than, oh, you know, I was a free will skeptic and now I'm a compatibilist. Oh, I was a moral anti-realist and now I'm a realist. Like to me, it feels the same, but with other people, they lose their minds if you criticize physicalism. And it's, it's not that everyone is like this, but some physicalists I think are just like really dogmatically committed to their physicalism. And it's honestly, like I said, it's just, this issue is like no other issue. 
-hmm. So anyway, yeah, I keep no, distracting myself. You're going to have to keep me <laughs> on track here. <laughs> yeah. So what else do you want to add here with regards to like the idea of like responding to physics? Okay. So weak emergence is the thing that I was, I think I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're going to yeah. have to keep me on track here because I will just <laughs> meander on and on and on about this issue. But yep. um, okay. So why is the emergence of consciousness like so different from the emergence of H2O or, um, or uh, tables or any of the other, you know, unrelated examples of successful reduction that, that people, you know, appeal to? Why is this different? So I think that it's different because phenomenal consciousness, well, for a few reasons, but for one reason is that phenomenal consciousness is more real than something like a table, which at the end of the day is kind of a convention. It's like a thing that we have invented, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's a way of talking about some stuff it's convenient. It's a, it's a, it's a matter of convention. Consciousness is not like that. You know, consciousness is like more real than a table and some like, so consciousness has more like ontological weight to it, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Which is why I think that when, if you think that consciousness emerged, right, like it couldn't have been this weak emergence because you're not talking about the same stuff that's always been there. Like it's this, it's a non-redundant addition to the inventory of reality. Okay. But like, as soon as you acknowledge that, as soon as you acknowledge, hey, consciousness is really, really real. It's actually mm -hmm. like something for me right now to have an experience. And it's not like anything at the fundamental levels of reality. Okay, well, consciousness, again, has this like ontological weight to it. And you think it emerged at some point. So look, you've got a non-redundant addition to reality. You've got this ontologically weighty thing that sprung into existence. That's not reductive materialism like that's not a uh, that's not weak emergence like if it emerged it had to have been strong emergence and we have a word for that it's called dualism you know emergent dualism is the name for or naturalistic dualism or whatever property dualism mm -hmm. like if you think that it's strong emergence which if it emerged it had to have been then you're a dualist you're not a reductive materialist so reductive materialism like i said it terminates in in rejecting the existence of phenomenal consciousness which is like as Galen Strawson said, it's the silliest claim anyone has ever seriously made before. Um, mm -hmm. So, like I said, <laughs> I think that reductive physicalism entails that consciousness doesn't exist. So for me, it's out. But um, there are other reasons as well. It's not just that it would require strong emergence because it feels like this ontologically weighty thing that's springing into existence. It's not just another way of talking about the same stuff that's always been there. So there's also this thing to do with vagueness. Um, so what I just laid out was sort of like an anti-emergence argument. And now mm -hmm. what, I, what I'm moving towards is, is sort of a vagueness argument. So when I first became a non-physicalist, these things were all kind of tied up in, a, in the same kind of rope. And I, it took me a while to, um, you know, pick out the different strands and be like, oh, I've been making like three or four separate arguments here. Um, so vagueness. So when something is vague, it means there's like a borderline case of it. It's like you can pick out a state and it's kind of indeterminate whether or not it's there. So you know, borderline case, it's indeterminate, it's vague whether or not it exists. So an example of that would be if I took, you know, the table that I keep using as an example, and I just like continually deformed it, you know, I just took this table and I continually deformed this table. At some point, it would be vague whether or not this thing I'm looking at is even a table. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, it would be like, people would disagree. Like, is that still a table? Does it still count as a table? It's like, well, it's it's a borderline case of a table, okay? Like, it's not really not a table, but it's also not a table. It's this borderline case. It's vague whether or not it's a table. Okay, so 
there can be no such borderline case of phenomenal consciousness. So, like I said, this is the thing that I'm first and foremost committed to is realism about phenomenal consciousness. And phenomenal consciousness cannot be vague. It can't be vague whether or not it exists. It's, um, you know, it's either there or it's not there. Sometimes people call this like sharpness. You know, it's this sharp distinction between consciousness and non-consciousness. Um, I call it like phenomenal precision. So it's like experience is either there or it's not there. And there is no borderline case. There's no in-between. It's either like something to be or it's not like anything to be. And there is no middle ground there. Okay, so does that make sense so far? Yeah, no, I think I'm tracking with you. So you're kind of saying like a story kind of like where like I'm thinking about like the idea of the table, like you can chip away and debate um, like whether eventually like whether something's a table or not. But when you get to like something like consciousness, there's this question of like, well, the, it doesn't seem like there'd be this place where you could debate it. Like you're either conscious or you're not. Right, exactly. So that's sort of the data point here is that is phenomenal precision, that consciousness can't be vague. So um, that I, I just take that to be a sort of a fact that needs to be explained. So consciousness can't be vague, phenomenal consciousness can't be vague, can't be borderline cases, but physicalism entails that there should be a borderline case of phenomenal consciousness. Because with all these physical things that we keep talking about, like the liquidity of water or this table or this chair or whatever, or um, a brain or, you know, like different things in biology we can point to, this is all very vague and messy. You know, it's very... It's like there are borderline cases of all these physical things. Okay, but there aren't any borderline cases of phenomenal consciousness. So how can you say that these two things are identical? Mm -hmm. Because consciousness can't be vague. There are no borderline cases of it. We can, or I should say, we can't conceive of any borderline cases. You know, we can't conceive of, just by in virtue of what those words mean, you know, borderline case and experience, you can tell it's just kind of meaningless. If you say borderline case of experience, that's just gibberish. That's just what's the temperature of the color red or something like that. It's just nonsense. So, you know, there couldn't, it's literally inconceivable that there could be a borderline case of phenomenal consciousness. Um, and yet physicalism entails that there would have to be borderline cases of phenomenal consciousness because physicalism identifies consciousness and brain states. Okay, so brain states are, uh, you know, they admit of borderline cases you know, but consciousness doesn't, so how can they be um, identical? So that's, you know, the basic, like, vagueness argument, right? Mm -hmm. So experience can't be vague. Physical stuff can be vague. So, you know, how can they how can they be identical? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm tracking with you. And I'm thinking just with, like, time and stuff, maybe if you have, like, one more argument you want to bring up, and then we can talk about, like, panpsychism um, and stuff. Yeah, so the, there are a couple different, um, you know, vagueness arguments. So, mm -hmm. like, um, the one I just mentioned is just like, you know, how can experience be identical with vague phenomena? You know, brains can be vague. There can be borderline cases of biological phenomena, um, you know, like fetus development, right? At some point, this fetus like became conscious, but, um, you know, it's, that, that's a vague process of development. So like, so the question is just kind of like, um, well, there, there are three different vagueness arguments. There are at least two and possibly three. So the first one is, is what I just kind of laid out, like how can these things be identical? Another one is sort of like an arbitrariness complaint. So, you know, you think about that, like fetus developing, right? Um, you know, just like at some point, these water molecules come together, like Paul mentioned, and then it's like it's liquid. Um, 
So at some point, you know, in this fetus's development, it like becomes conscious, right? So the question is just like, where exactly? <laughs> where exactly does it become consciousness? Like, because again, we, you know, there's this truth of phenomenal precision. So it's got to just be this sudden moment, this just sudden leap, which is totally out of character with everything else in the physical world, right? So it's like everything else in the physical world, it, it seems to admit of these borderline cases, um, certainly in the biological world, at least. I think that's safe to say. And um, so you've got to pick a point, you know, you got to pick a point in evolutionary development when consciousness just sprung into existence, you know, because again, mm. it's this sudden leap because it's not big. So for the development of a fetus, you know, somewhere in down the line of evolutionary change, there had to be this dramatic change in nature. All of a sudden, it's like something to be this, you know, consciousness is sprung into existence. So the arbitrary, the arbitrariness complaint is just like, so why was it at like, you know, eight nerve cells instead of like nine, mm -hmm. like what, or instead of seven, or, you know what I mean? Because, like, it's going to feel arbitrary, no matter where, which point you pick in the fetus's development or in our in our ancestors' development, you know, whenever consciousness appeared in the evolutionary timeline, like, it's going to feel arbitrary, right? Like, wherever you pick. But the thing is, the whole, you know, part of the idea of reductive materialism is that this is supposed to make sense. There's supposed to be a reason for this. So the fact that it feels arbitrary and there's just no discernible reason why it would be here and not there... That's one type of vagueness argument as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the other, as I mentioned, is sort of like, you know, this biological stuff, it's the product of weak emergence. It's just the same stuff that's always been there arranged differently. Um, it's vague, it's messy, um, it's unquestionable in the realm of biology. Um, but the emergence of consciousness was this precise change, you know, in nature, the sudden leap, mm -hmm. which seems out of character and couldn't possibly be the product of weak emergence. So. What was responsible for this sudden change in nature? Well, presumably, you know, a really complex neural state. But the thing is, complex neural states admit of borderline cases, whereas consciousness does not. So how can those things be identical? So that's mm -hmm. those are basically the two branches of the vagueness argument. Yeah, no, that's super good. And like, I was thinking about this with like um, my nieces, like they're on my background and I unlock my iPad and it's like, like they're like two years old now. And I'm like, with like a physicalist view, like, like when they're developing like is there some sort of point where it's like a like a flip switches and like then they're conscious like because then like the right like the right neurons connected and like now they're conscious rather than like at some other point they weren't like it seems like like i'm totally like i'm tracking with you and thinking like this is very like a weird way of thinking about like how consciousness works because it, it just seems like it's wrong so mm -hmm. yeah that i mean that's that's exactly right it's like at some point there just had to be this switch that was flipped and mm -hmm. it's like yeah it, it's um that fact, I think, just is a huge anomaly for reductive physicalists that I don't really think can be explained. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's super good. So let's talk about panpsychism, because I think it's good to kind of look at like different views that may have like a lot of the things that like may attract some people to physicalism, but they can get rid of things like say like the hard problem in dealing with these things. So do you want to just like briefly introduce panpsychism and how it's different than physicalism? Yeah, so... Um, you know, I'm kind of part, I, my credences are kind of divided between panpsychism and dualism. So mm -hmm. I think that consciousness is, you know, fundamental to reality. And actually, so do you. So does any theist. Um, not just because you're an idealist, you know, or, you know, you're sympathetic mm -hmm. to that or whatever. But I'm just saying that, like, any theist who, you know, believes in an actual God, like, believes that consciousness is fundamental to reality. Um, mm -hmm. I just affirm, like, a naturalistic version of that idea. 
Um, you know, sometimes I think of panpsychism as kind of like a synthesis of naturalism and theism, which kind of has, you know, benefits from both views, but not really the shortcomings of these two views. So um, panpsychism, as I said, it's just the view that consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous. So, um, you know, it doesn't seem like consciousness is ubiquitous. So how do we make sense of that? <laughs> it seems like it's yeah. kind of this localized phenomenon. Um, you know, but the thing is, like, as we've seen, there are problems with thinking that experience is just kind of identical with like nervous systems. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's like, I've got these anti-emergence complaints, and I've got these vagueness complaints. It just seems like there are huge problems with identifying um, consciousness with, uh, with like nervous systems, basically, you know, so with brains. So, um, so the, one reason for thinking it's fundamental is that you don't suffer from any of those problems. You don't suffer from the hard problem of consciousness. You know, you don't have to explain how consciousness emerged because it's just an entailment of panpsychism that consciousness is everywhere. Um, so, you know, the intrinsic nature of physical matter is consciousness. So um, it might help to introduce a new term here, which is um, mm -hmm. dual aspect monism. So I think it kind of caps, so I, I, the kind of panpsychism I'm attracted to is dual aspect panpsychism. So there's just one type of, it's like ontological monism. There's only one type of stuff, but it's like epistemic dualism, you know? So how the thing appears to you depends on your position in nature. So, you know, like it's just one way of construing the relationship of mind and matter. And it's one that's, I really don't think there's a simpler one on offer. Like, I think this is possibly the simplest way you could construe the, uh, the relationship of mind and matter. So you've got, um, sorry, I've got this itch on my, like, right under my nose. I don't want it to look like I'm picking my nose, but <laughs> it's very itchy. I can, like, hide you and cover you if you need me to. So um, Let the record show I'm not picking my nose. So, um, <laughs> you know, so, physicists uh, are going to complain, like, Emerson's picking his nose. So, <laughs> so panpsychism can't be right. It's got to be physical. That would be a valid argument. Um, <laughs> so it's like, you know, if you think about, you know, so you're a conscious creature observing me right now. If you look into my brain, doesn't matter what technology you have, you're never going to see my experiences, right? Like no one thinks that. Like, you you know, you could look at my brain activity, you could look at all the stuff that's going on, and um, but you're never going to find my experiences. So the way that I construe this is like a dual aspect monist is like, well, look, that physical activity, that just is consciousness, like from the outside. So like I'm having these conscious experiences and if you were to observe my conscious experiences, they would appear to you as brain activity. That's just what consciousness looks like from the outside. So any like cutting off where it's like, okay, like uh, physical activity is just what consciousness looks like from the outside, but only when it comes to brains. That's just like really arbitrary and it just seems to suffer from all the problems that I just talked about. And um, yeah, so it's just like you just kind of want to say that like, no, this is all physical activity. Like I said, it's, it really is as simple of a view as you could get. Like some people think that it's it's not simple because we're saying that consciousness is everywhere and that seems like metaphysically profligate. But the thing is like materialists say that matter is everywhere. Is that metaphysically profligate? Like, no, of course not because something is everywhere. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's not metaphysically profligate to say that consciousness is everywhere if you construe it a certain way for the same exact reason that it's not, that physicalism isn't like metaphysically profligate, you know? So um, yeah, it's just sort of the view that there are these two aspects 
to to nature, you know, to all this physical stuff out there. There's the physical activity and then there's the conscious activity that underlies that physical activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like thinking about kind of like the whole cosmos because like I think a lot of times people will be like, well, it's consciousness like, well, there's like this evolutionary story and that explains consciousness. But then we have this problem of thinking about like the idea of like, well, like where did the first consciousness come from? And then like this idea of like, well, we can't even conceive of a world like that doesn't exist without any sort of consciousness because like we're conscious. Like if we weren't, then like we wouldn't be conceiving of anything. So like um, I feel like posing like consciousness at some fundamental way, like it just makes some sense because that's the only way we can even like think about the world. Um, so yeah. yeah, no, yeah. It's an, it's like an epistemic argument that like, but um, the thing that, like I can I can conceive of a world where consciousness doesn't exist. Like I can conceive of a world where physicalism was true, <laughs> but um, it's just not our world. You know, we know that mm -hmm. we exist, and the fact that I have a metaphysical view that entails the existence of consciousness, and physicalists don't, I think that is potentially an argument in favor of these kind of consciousness first or consciousness only monisms. That I'm kind of like I said, I kind of divide my credence between, you know, the consciousness only monism of like you know panpsychism and idealism and dualism where it's just like well these things seem like different things because they're just different things and i should actually um i should mention that uh you know because one of the main arguments for materialism is just that there are correlations between um you know brain and uh, yeah. consciousness so that's um again not an argument for just for materialism mm -hmm. it's um it's also just yeah, like I said, this um this whole idea that like correlations, like the existence of correlations, like that somehow gets you all the way to materialism is just like completely unjustifiable. Like because so, yeah, let's just like get into that kind of like the idea of like well, like are there any predictions that like physicalism make the like panpsychism or like the dualism you're attracted to doesn't? Um, because a lot of people like will like champion this idea, especially like physicalists that like physicalism like owns science and like we have like these neuroscience these correlates and like like we're gonna win out because we have the science on our side. Well, again, the science is not on their side. Um, they're just confused about what science is and about what the metaphysics of consciousness is. And like, that's mm -hmm. where that confusion is, is coming from. So like, again, these neuroscientific findings of these correlations, they're, they're empirically neutral or they're metaphysically neutral. Okay. So it's like, you can interpret these correlations in many different ways. You can interpret them uh, as a naturalistic dualist, where you think that consciousness is this strongly emergent phenomenon. Um, you can interpret them as a dual aspect panpsychist. Um, you can interpret them as a reductive materialist. But like, just the fact that there are correlations doesn't favor any of those three views that I just mentioned. So it's like, you have to argue for them on philosophical grounds. You have to use reason. There's nothing. There's no experiment you can conduct that's going to, um, you know, settle this dispute. So it's like when people say, oh, panpsychism is unfalsifiable. It's like, so is materialism. It's a metaphysical view. Um, but yeah, so it's like their main, many people, like they stop, they just kind of figure out that there are correlations between um, experience and between the brain and they just kind of park there. And, um, but the thing is like, you know, we've all heard that like correlation doesn't equal causation, mm -hmm. but correlation definitely doesn't equal identity. Like, just mm -hmm. because these things are correlated doesn't mean they're identical. It's usually not even something you have to say. But, like, just the fact that these things are correlated doesn't prove they're identical. Like, especially if you have some kind of philosophical reasoning behind thinking that they're distinct. Like, the uh, the correlations we discover don't change that. 
it wouldn't change those reasons that you have for thinking that mind and matter, um, you know, are, are, are uh, not the same thing. Mm -hmm. This may be a bad analogy, but I just thought of it. So feel free to destroy me if I'm wrong here. But, like thinking about like the idea of like, like when I move my hand, like there's some sort of like chemical signal that's going through my brain to like cause my hand to move. But like, obviously like we'd be silly to say like my brain is my hand. Like there's obviously this difference. Like, do you think that could be something similar to like what you're talking about? You know, sometimes I feel like there must be some kind of mistake there because I think the same thing sometimes where it's just like, well, you know, there are all kinds of things correlated with changes in my mind, right? Like, I mean, the bird flies outside my window. That represents a change in my mind. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't think that, you know, just because there's some kind of correlation, um, you know, I, I just think you have to be careful there because there are there's obviously a reason we're talking about the brain and not the bird outside my window, even though they both, you know, you change one, you change my conscious experience in both cases. But I think there is like a difference there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. So let's finish with this. Like, um, if you're going to make like your, your plea to the physicalist or like kind of talk about like <laughs> Emerson's last words, um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not. Um, but like, if you're going to kind of make the, the case to the physicalist of like why you shouldn't be a physicalist, like what's kind of the case you'd kind of lay out? Cause we've, we've done a lot here in 50 minutes, but like, like what, what would you point to to kind of bring people away from this kind of thought about the mind? I guess my dying words would be consciousness is not like tables. <laughs> um, yeah, they're just really not the same thing. I mean, we've talked about several reasons why the, like the analogies that uh, reductionists give are just not good analogies. Um, there are several relevant differences there. Um, so I agree with Chalmers, though, that we should keep an open mind on the issue of consciousness. So it's like, I don't want to just cut off physicalists and be like, you're definitely wrong, um, even though they are. And I'm never, honestly, like, I'm, I'm fairly certain. Honestly, I am more certain that physicalism is false than I am that theism is false. Wow. And like, I'm a pretty, yeah. So the thing about changing physicalists' mind, hmm, like, I, I don't, it's, it's yeah. tricky. I'm trying hard to not say what I actually think here, because I think that there are like, there are some physicalists, you know, because I was a physicalist. I changed my mind, okay? But I'm kind of reminded of um, Bernardo Castro, who he the same question was put to him. And they were just like, how do you change a physicalist mind? And he's like, you don't. You don't. They're dogmatically committed. They're religiously committed. They will never change their mind. And like, there's a part of me that sees that because I've been talking about consciousness publicly for a couple of years now. And like, you know, I didn't care about philosophy of mind until a couple of years ago. And I started talking about it. And it's like, when I encounter physicalists, a huge section of them will never change their mind. And like, I've mm. talked to them, I've gone back and forth with them. It does feel like just this hopeless exercise sometimes. And again, it feels like it's different from all these other issues where ordinarily you can give some kind of argument, the argument makes sense, and someone changes their mind eventually. It doesn't seem to be the case with physicalism. Um, yeah, so it's just like, you know, like I, this vagueness argument that we've been, um, like that I talked about for quite a while. And by the way, thanks for letting me just, um, ramble on um borderline incoherently for uh, just like minutes on for. it's for, i made it specifically for emerson so that he could one day just ramble about consciousness so yeah. so it's like you know so there's this big uh physicalist philosopher you know um michael ty who just changed his mind you know he seems to be some kind of panpsychist now it does happen hmm. there are they do change their minds sometimes um but you know he was convinced by this vagueness argument so there's been kind of like an uptick in people talking about the vagueness argument and I've seen 
a couple philosophers now make the same point where they're just like, okay, I agree with you that physicalism entails that there should be borderline cases of phenomenal consciousness. And I agree with you that I cannot even conceive of such a thing as a borderline case of phenomenal consciousness. But that doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm still a physicalist. And then they'll just give like, they'll add these layers of complication that just add nothing. And like, don't seem to change the, and like I said, this issue just seems like no other. If you, anyway, I'll I'll try to be more positive here. If I was trying to change a physicalist's mind, I guess I would just try to make this sort of vagueness argument and this anti-emergence argument where I would try to show them that like, look, this is not like the emergence of other things. And if you think about it, I could give you a complete physical description of everything that's going on in your brain. And it would not seem to entail that it's like anything to have that brain state or for that function to be carried out. So Richard Swinburne has this really funny quote. Um, I'm not going to try to do the voice, but he's like uh, talking about how, look, you know, it's obvious. It's so clear that sensations are not entailed by physical brain events. It's not a logical consequence of these physical events that there would be sensations. And anyone can see that unless they've been totally dogmatized. And it's like, it does just seem completely obvious that these physical brain events, this electrochemical activity does not entail that it's like something to be that physical activity. Okay, so Mm -hmm. if that's true, then physicalism just doesn't work. It just doesn't work that if you can give a complete physical description of what's happening and leave something out, leave out the consciousness, then that means that physicalism is false. It really is that simple. So at least it's that simple for me. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's good. What I'd add, I think at the end is we hinted at this a little bit, like in the very beginning, like, th- but like this can be a bridge building spot. Like, I think like sometimes we get into this idea of like, well, like there's these certain things that like the theist can't acknowledge or theism is false. Or, like the certain things that the, like the atheist can't acknowledge or atheism is false. And I feel like oftentimes like consciousness can be like one of those things where like the, the Christian or the theist may argue like, well, well, there's no way atheism could ever explain this. And like, if you're an atheist, like, you're probably more likely to give up um, this idea of like non-reducible consciousness than uh, you're going to give up your atheism. And you can say the same thing about like the problem of evil or something for theists. Like, so I just want to say like, this is a, like you can agree and like we can be like theists and atheists and agree like, like, yeah, physicalism is false. And I don't know, maybe it weighs credence to some of you. And I'm sure you and I both have views on that and whatnot. And yeah, we can keep using it as a tool, but it's not like the end of the conversation where it like decisively proves or disproves a worldview. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that um, you can take, as a theist or as an atheist, you can take any metaphysical view about consciousness that you want. It's compatible with, you can be a dualist, a materialist, panpsychist, you can be a neutral monist, you can be whatever, and a theist or an atheist. And I honestly don't even think this issue favors any particular view. You might mm-hmm. argue that substance dualism might favor theism over atheism, but I don't even think that's clear. Like, I really think that you can mix and match all these, like, metaphysical views with your religious views. And, like, I just don't even see how it favors one over the other. Like, they're, they're, it's totally clear, first of all, totally uncontroversial that they're all compatible. You can be an atheist and believe whatever you want about the metaphysics of consciousness and same for theists. But mm-hmm. I'm not even sure that it, like, favors, like, one view over the other if you're a non-physicalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this has been really good stuff. So I appreciate you, Emerson, a lot. Um, do you have any kind of, like, last thoughts or things you didn't you things you didn't get to say before we wrap up here well now i'm thinking about the last response video that uh you and planning as bulldog did and i want to like (laughs) um but no i will say um planning as bulldog is right about one thing i do have excellent taste in music 
you do. You really, <laughs> <laughs> you really do. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. That was an interesting video. But you, mm-hmm. your podcast, like those transitions, like very smooth. So <laughs> I appreciate that about you. So yeah. Well, good stuff, Emerson. Thank you so much um, for coming on today. There's a link tree down below. It's Emerson's link tree. So you can see like his podcast and how to follow him and all that stuff. So I encourage you to check that out. Really great content. And I enjoy listening to Emerson's stuff a lot. There's a lot of great stuff to think about, especially if you're like a Christian uh, in terms of like the best ideas for atheism and like arguments for atheism and responding to like Christian apologetics and whatnot. But yeah, that's it for today. If you're new, always encourage you to subscribe, um, leave a like and all that fun stuff. And we wish you the best and we will see you next time. So one last time. Thank you, Emerson. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me.